The best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. When you watch a guy, Ger, standing on the sideline counting players with his fingers, you know this is bullshit. Probably the greatest ever victory for Ireland. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. All right, welcome back to the show. It's Richie McCormick here with you. Now, this week, Deshaun Watson was suspended for just six games despite engaging with engaging in behaviour which was described as more egregious than any before reviewed by the NFL. Uh, to discuss the matter and indeed the NFL's appeal against that six-game ban, we're joined on the line by the reporter who's been to the forefront of bringing this story to the world. It's New York Times' Jenny Rentis. Jenny, you're very welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, this has been a really difficult one to untangle because, in a sense, there is a lot of testimony from more than two dozen women who have been accusing Deshaun Watson of sexual misconduct. Uh, but this has obviously gone to a disciplinary hearing and has you know, resulted in the NFL essentially not being happy with the ruling that's come down from the federal judge, Sue L. Robinson. Give us a timeline of events because this has been a kind of slowly unfurling story over the past year or so. Yeah. So what happens now after the NFL appealed on Wednesday, the ruling by Sue L. Robinson, the players union is expected to respond by Friday. And then a person, the CBA allows for either Goodell or someone he chooses to hear the appeal And it says it will be handled on an expedited basis, but there's really no timeline uh, outlined in the CBA for when a decision would be expected. Uh, But this is kind of the final step uh, in all of the allegations against Deshaun Watson. You know, this began in March of 2021 with the first of what would become 24 lawsuits. Watson has now settled all but one of them. Uh, two grand juries in Texas declined to indict him. So the NFL disciplinary ruling, uh, wherever it ends up after this appeal, is kind of the last layer of, uh, you know, last form in which he could potentially be facing accountability. Um, Now, if the NFL comes down with a much uh, higher discipline than was recommended by the initial disciplinary officer, uh, the union could challenge in federal courts. But just in terms of sort of the three prongs in which the allegations against Watson were considered, civil court, criminal court, and by his employer, this is sort of the last of those three. People might be a bit confused, Jenny, as to why if a player can, you know, be found to have engaged in more egregious behaviour than has ever been discovered before, uh, how he can be banned for six games, whereas we saw Calvin Ridley last year being banned indefinitely for, you know, gambling on games. It kind of doesn't, it mightn't tally uh, in a lot of people's heads. And I don't think certainly in mine as regards how this would be a six game ban versus an indefinite suspension. Can you give us a a reasoning behind why the ruling is so seemingly lenient? Yeah, so there has been a lot of outcry from the lawyer who represented most of Watson's accusers, Tony Busby. He called the six games a slap in the face. Uh, Advocates for survivors of sexual violence, uh, as well as sports law experts, all thought the ruling was surprisingly low. But what did come out in Sue Robinson's initial report, you know, as the process agreed to in the CBA, right, there's this third party disciplinary officer who hears the case, and she issues a ruling. And in her ruling, she found Watson guilty of multiple offenses of the personal conduct policy, including unwanted sexual contact. She found that the preponderance of the evidence supported those conclusions. She left open the door for the league to 
upon appeal come down with a harsher discipline. She basically suggested that Watson may deserve a stricter penalty, but that she felt limited by the NFL's past precedent of discipline issued and the league's own policies um, in issuing a stronger penalty. But upon appeal, that's where Goodell or his designee can then say, okay, well, she found he's guilty of multiple violations of the policy. And as a result, we're now going to recommend a stronger penalty. The fact that she's having to go on you know, previous cases doesn't really speak that well of the NFL's ability to deal with such behavior in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. What you saw in the brief was two things. One was a uh, condemnation of what she believed to be, you know, the behavior that was laid out by the evidence, right? You know, she called his behavior predatory and egregious um, and that she believed that the NFL had enough information to support its case that he kind of engaged in this predatory pattern of behavior as the NFL described it. But the second part of her ruling was essentially what you just alluded to, is that the NFL has been somewhat inconsistent or capricious in handing out penalties in the past. And also that the NFL's own policies, um, which post the Ray Rice incident in 2014, they rewrote the personal conduct policy that kind of drew a line between violent and nonviolent offenses. And I think experts in the area say that's kind of um, a difficult thing to do because each case should be considered individually, the impact it had on the people who have been coming forward. Uh, some uh, offenses that don't involve physical violence can be just as uh, traumatizing to the people affected. And so um, I think because of this line that the NFL's policies drew between so-called violent and nonviolent, she categorized his offenses as nonviolent because it, they didn't involve physical force. And because of that, she sort of put the discipline she issued into a lesser category of penalty. And you would have spoken to, or at least, you know, heard testimony from a lot of the women who've been involved in these cases and would have been involved uh, with Deshaun Watson. And certainly their, you know, recounting of events speaks to the trauma that has been impacted upon them, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the women's accounts are and should continue to be at the center of all of this discussion. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. And, you know, most of the women describe, you know, their careers and lives being affected for a long while afterward. They describe uh, some of them felt, you know, scared and intimidated by him in the room. Um, they felt like they had no option if they were sort of forced to go forward with coerced sex acts or this contact was kind of forced upon them. It wasn't something that they invited or wanted, according to their accounts. And so I do think, you know, that it should be considered, um, the totality of their experiences should be considered. And again, by by drawing this line between some offenses and others, by saying that physical force is sort of a dividing line between the severity of penalties, I think experts say it is, is a, a problematic precedent, right? That the person coming down with the discipline should have a lot of latitude to determine a penalty based on the facts of the case. And in this case, she found that there were facts to support a problematic pattern of behavior um, she just felt limited by the NFL's precedent and policies. But that's where, you know, Goodell or someone he designates has the power to change that and basically say, hey, this is how our policy should be interpreted. Or at the very least, 
this is unprecedented behavior and a stricter penalty is uh, warranted. There's a lot of like big picture stuff for this that really kind of, I don't know, it, it's striking uh, looking at it from this distance when you talk about the Ray Rice incident in 2014 and them separating violent and nonviolent behaviour. As you mentioned, it needs to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis and I'd agree with that. It, it seems that there's a bigger problem here within the NFL and within, I don't know, possibly within American sport as a whole. Are there education courses being in, you know, in, involved here with different franchises? Is it a, a league-wide thing whereby the league has people that they can send to different franchises and maybe kind of speak to them about these kinds of incidents and ways and means of trying to prevent them from happening in the future? Or is it just, sure, look, we'll deal with it when one pops up? Yeah, so there, post-Ray Rice, there was a rollout of a significant education and prevention program. You know, every team would go through trainings um, focusing on off-field behaviors, domestic violence, sexual violence. Uh, and also, I believe people um, affiliated with, uh, you know, the teams and, you know, family members would have access to some of these resources as well. And I think the prevention piece is obviously really important, but so is the consequences piece. And I think, you know, we know that there has to be some penalty for these behaviors to be deterred. And the penalty should be consistent and strong enough to actually deter behaviors. And I think that's where experts say, you know, six games in this case wouldn't be enough to deter or correct behaviors. And, you know, the other part about uh, the discipline that was recommended by uh, Sue L. Robinson was that it didn't involve any measure of counseling. Um, And I think um, that's really important because, you know, in terms of correcting behaviors, that's a key piece of any kind of consequences that someone may face. And as the league has appealed this, they've recommended counseling. um, They've recommended potentially a fine. um, And I think they also noted that stricter consequences were needed, especially because there has been no expressed remorse from Watson. Um, And so I think um, all of that sort of folds into the, rehabilitation piece of this and sort of making sure that whatever discipline there is is designed at correcting these alleged behaviors that's one of the things as well that, that, that that's also striking is that watson's shown no remorse in this so you you know i don't think we'd be stretching things to suggest that if counseling or some kind of corrective behavior was to be you know instituted here that he mightn't be that in favor of it. um i don't think that's too far of a stretch is it You know, I think counseling does seem appropriate and certainly in past personal conduct cases, that has been one of the tenets of the league discipline. So, you know, that could have been part of their reason for appealing even on its own. I mean, they've recommended a stricter penalty, but I think they also want there to be, you know, the fine and the counseling to make sure that um, that's part of the, you know, the deterrence and the correction. There's also a players union to kind of factor into all of this as well. Where do they stand as regards uh, the ruling as it stands now and the potential of a stricter penalty coming from the NFL and Roger Goodell? Yeah. So even before Sue L. Robinson issued her decision, um, the players union had sent a statement saying that they would not appeal Uh, that they believed essentially that the fairest process Watson would get would be from this third party disciplinary officer. And they called on the league to do the same. Uh, But the league 
has clearly not done the same. They, they have appealed and they have that ability in the CBA. You know, the CBA that was agreed to in 2020 by both sides sort of redid the disciplinary process a little bit uh, in response to some of the scrutiny over, you know, Roger Goodell controlling the entire process. They introduced this initial layer of the disciplinary officer. Um, and I think that was a win for the players in the sense of this person will find if there have been violations of the policy, you know, no matter what Goodell wants to do, if the first disciplinary officer, the first person to consider the case doesn't find that there's violations or doesn't find that the league's investigation has put forth enough evidence, then there isn't much the league can do. But in this case, uh, since she did find that the evidence supported multiple violations of the policy, you know, based on that, the NFL can then, or, you know, Goodell or his designee rather has the power to then institute a harsher penalty. So the league, uh, excuse me, the players union will respond to the league's brief on on Friday. Um, And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when the appeal is resolved. Will they take it to federal court? But because this is a new process, um, the language in the CBA was really written with some of these past federal court challenges in mind. And legal experts say that the language is pretty airtight against a possible challenge in federal courts. I think courts generally defer to in-house arbitration procedures, but the language of the CBA even goes a step farther in saying that explicitly that the decision upon appeal is final, full, and binding to both sides. And so I do think that makes the challenge in federal court even more difficult than challenges in the past, which have not been successful either. Would it be fair to say that when you were talking about the, you know, the players union didn't want to challenge whatever the outcome was going to be and the NFL said similar, that the players union were possibly expecting more than just the six games? Because you're talking about somebody who could be back in action by the end of October. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the players union was sort of uh, wanting to put weight behind this additional step that they had bargained for. Right. I think they wanted to say, hey, a third party disciplinary officer, that person, whatever their decision is, you know, there should be weight put into that decision. That decision should be upheld. Um, And they said in their statement, you know, it should not be overruled essentially by the quote unquote wins of the league office is how they put it. So I think they were trying to um, sort of re-express support in the process that they bargained. Um, But now, you know, the second half of that process is that there can be an appeal to Goodell and the commissioner, Goodell or his designee, excuse me, and the league has taken that route. The Browns don't come out of this at all well um, considering that they've you know they've known about this for quite a while they have Deshaun Watson on a massive big money contract and will continue to employ him it seems beyond whatever you know disciplinary outcome uh, happens over the next few weeks and months um, it's, like it's it, it leaves a bit of a stink around the franchise doesn't it or at least I don't know shouldn't it at, at this stage yeah you know and I think what the Browns have not given a very good answer to is when they traded for Deshaun Watson after the first grand jury declined to indict him, you know, they said they believed in his version of events. They believed in the person that he would be in their community. They essentially accepted his explanations. Um, And now we have a neutral third party arbiter, whatever the discipline is, her report very clearly stated that she believes there was a preponderance of the evidence supporting these 
predatory and egregious behaviors, right? She said she did not find his complete denials credible. Um, And so you have a situation where the team has put all this money into the quarterback and yet a neutral third party has said that the claims against him are, are strong and supported by evidence. So we haven't really uh, gotten a clear response from the Browns on how that affects, if it does at all, how they view this player they committed the most guaranteed money to in NFL history. There's been one statement from the Browns owners, Jimmy and D Haslam, in which they said they would continue to support Watson. Um, and they stated that he's been remorseful. And that stood out to me and, and many others because the uh, neutral, you know, third party disciplinary officer said that Watson had not expressed remorse. Um, so it sort of goes in conflict with what we've seen to date and w- what a retired federal judge assessed of the situation. And as well, they would surely have cause for complaint themselves in the sense that like I don't want to draw parallels because it's probably a dangerous game, but if you see somebody, say in the case of maybe like a Vince McMahon with WWE, whereby he used money uh, to obviously make certain situations go away and you know make people sign NDAs, he's using essentially company money to ring fence the company. How do the Browns feel about the money they're paying to Deshaun Watson being used to settle 23 different cases? Yeah. I mean, there have been no indications that they don't intend to pay him the guaranteed money they promised. You know, obviously there will be a slight loss in compensation um, as a result of whatever gains he will miss. Um, But his base salary is about a million. So that's a, a small portion of the 230 million guaranteed. And they gave him that contract, you know, with most of the allegations out there. Yes, there has been some new information since then. You know, two new lawsuits were filed after they traded for and signed him. You know, we released a story at the New York Times showing that his uh, problematic behavior was more extensive than had been previously known. But the bulk of the accusations were out there when they made that decision. And so I think they made it expecting that, OK, he's going to miss some time, but this is a rare opportunity to acquire a top five quarterback. And we're just going to accept the fact that he'll miss, you know, some games or part of a season or in this case, the NFL is recommending a full season. But and then we'll have this player. Um, and, you know, I think that's a decision that they should continue to be held accountable for. I think they probably thought at the time that people might move on and that eventually focus would turn to football. But um, I think that's really unfair to the women who stepped forward. Most of them are anonymous women. Their voices aren't often given a lot of credence. Uh, Many of them are women of color. You know, these are people who have been in many cases easily overlooked uh, what they've been saying. Um, And so I think, you know, To me, the most important part of Robinson's ruling was not necessarily the amount of time missed, although that is, of course, Mm -hmm. going to be the focus for the next little bit. It's that she found that, you know, the accounts that she considered were substantially corroborated by the evidence and that she felt that there was enough evidence to show predatory and egregious behaviors. Has this whole process made it uh, more difficult for women to come forward in similar situations, do you think? Well... I think it's interesting because 
the Deshaun Watson case has not played out like we expect many cases would in the post Me Too era, right? Where, you know, we have seen a lot of people in power face consequences. Uh, This case has played out a little bit differently. Um, And I think the sports world probably hasn't faced the same Me Too reckoning as other parts of society. Um, And I think that's for a lot of reasons, but one of which is that, you know, this is a sports league and entertainment institution where wins are valued above all else um, and bad behavior can be excused. Um, And so I think that's why, you know, how this is handled by the league is important, you know, Um, and not only the amount of games they ultimately uh, suspend Watson for, but also just, how the women coming forward were treated, how their accounts were treated, and how we continue to talk about those accounts. Yeah, it's, a, I think, a story that's going to continue to rumble on. Jenny Frentis, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me.